Second Peter chapter one. Now, while you're turning there, I need to tell you, uh, having a little technical difficulty with the live streaming, but that's okay. If anybody asks about it, just say that's electronics. It happens. That's what I say all the time. Uh, <clears throat> but we'll take care of that. Now we had a little bit of technical difficulty with the song. I want you to know that is not Brother Joe or Brother Curtis's fault. Uh, some of you don't know this. While the church had been shut down over the past couple months, we actually had some folks get into the church building here. And uh, now they, they didn't tear anything up, thank God. They didn't steal anything important, but they did, for some reason, feel like they had to play in the sound room. And so Brother Damon and I know Curtis and Joe, they've been working things out, getting that set back right. So we may fade in and out. We may have some problems. That's, that's no big deal. Okay, uh, it'll, it'll come back together eventually. Uh, now, some of you may be saying, well, what did they steal that was of no great value? Believe it or not, they took all the clothes that I used to baptize with and my Nike tennis shoes, which that's okay. I don't wear Nike anymore anyway. I won't buy Nike anymore, so that's all right. I'm glad they went ahead and took them. Uh, and as far as the clothes, if somebody had asked me, I'd have given them all to them, and I'd have went and bought them new ones besides. So, no big deal. Uh, we're grateful that there was no damage done here in the church. The only thing really was the sound system. So, again, if we have trouble with it, you know what's going on. It's not the boy's fault in the back, all right? Now, folks, here in Second Peter, and i got to be honest with you, uh, this is not what I had planned on preaching this morning. This was not what I was going to start. I had a message on reunion. Family reunion, I was going to preach since this was our, our first Sunday back together as a church family. But at 9 o'clock last night, God began to impress upon my heart. Matter of fact, all day off and on yesterday. But about 9 o'clock last night, God said, don't waste time. This is what you need to do. So, that's why we're in Second Peter this morning. And that's probably why we're going to be in Second Peter for the next few weeks on Sunday morning. How many of you ever heard a sermon series or a study through Second Peter? That many. Wow. Uh, yeah, that's not a book that you hear preachers preach on a lot or teach through a lot. It's pretty deep, theologically speaking. But there are some great truths that I think we need to know. And I believe it's very applicable to the day and the time in which we're living. Now, if you have your Bibles to Second Peter chapter 1, let's have prayer. And then I want to start by telling you a true story. And we'll get to reading it in just Father, thank you again for this time. Please open our hearts and minds. May we be sensitive to what you're saying to us. May what is said uh, be said clearly, be said with your authority, and be said in such a way that it pierces the heart. I pray that you're pleased. I pray that what is done honors you. In Christ's name, amen. Now, I'm going to tell you a true story. Several years ago, about Four miles off the coast of Florida, there was a couple by the name of Glenda and Robert Lennon. And they were fishing in their, their private yacht. Well, Glenda decided that it was hot. She was going to take a swim. She dove out of the ocean to swim. And in just a little while, she wasn't paying attention. The undercurrent had taken her away from the boat. Taken her out so far that she could not get back. So she began to holler at her husband. And her husband, of course, being the great husband that he is, he grabbed the life jacket, he jumped in and swam to her. Put the life jacket on. But then he realized 
That was stupid because now I'm away from the boat and the boat continues getting farther and farther away due to the current. Well, it just so happened that Robert, her husband, was an experienced swimmer. Matter of fact, he was a champion, collegiate swimmer. And he told her, he said, here's, here's what we're going to do. Put this life jacket on, roll over on your back and float. I'm going to swim against the tide, against the current. I'm going to make it to the boat. I'll get the boat and I'll come and pick you up. She said, okay. So she rolled over and began to float. He began to swim back to the boat. But the harder he swam, the farther away the boat got because he was fighting against the tide, fighting against the current. He swam for six hours. And it was just at sunset when the tide changed and was finally able to reach the boat. He got in the boat, six hours of swimming. He got in the boat, went back to find his wife and couldn't find her. So he looked for half the night. He couldn't find her. He called in search and rescue. And about 10 o'clock the next morning, they found his wife 20 miles from where it all started. And you know what? They found her safe and alive. That's a remarkable story, amen? Because if you know anything about people being dragged out to the ocean, you know that they usually don't end that way. They don't end so well. This morning, what I want to talk to you about is fighting against the current. Uh, and church, I, I want you to understand that, that the church, in every generation, the church finds herself swimming and fighting against the current. There is uh, two currents. There's the current that, that the church always fights against. Again, every generation. There's the current of persecution and suffering. And there's also the current of perverse and false teaching. One batters the church from the outside. And the other threatens to wash us away from the inside. And because these currents are always trying to push us away from Christ, we have to be diligent, church. We must Avoid, as I preached last Sunday night, and do what all that we can to avoid the drift. We must keep from drifting away. The Apostle Peter addresses both currents uh, that threaten to push the church off course. In First Peter, First uh, Peter, in that book, the book that Brother Damon has been teaching through and preaching through on Wednesday nights, Peter talks about the current of persecution and suffering, and he tells the church how to stand strong in faith. Faith to face what's going on. Here in Second uh, Peter, it focuses on how to maintain faith in the face of falsehoods and false teachings. Because in Peter's day, in the early church, there were false teachings began to infiltrate the church, and they are they have infiltrated and are being taught in the church today. And in this second letter, what he does again, the apostle Peter seeks to uh, expose the people his people as brothers and sisters in Christ to the truth and in doing so to give them some spiritual steel in their hearts and minds so they'll stand against what seeks to damage them to discourage them and to pull them away from Jesus Christ and what Peter wants the church to do is be able to recognize the lies and the battle for the truth of the gospel now understand me church the battle for truth exists in every generation and every generation needs to battle, needs to fight for the truth. Because listen to me, it's not simply the current generation that's at stake and stands to lose. It's the generations that follow that stand to lose. And we are witnessing that in our world, in our nation, and in the church today. One writer said this, 
You can have a clear and pure stream of water flowing from the mountaintop. But as it flows downstream, it can become polluted. It can become tainted. Well, I want you to listen to me. A pure gospel, that's exactly what we have in the Word of God. But it can become polluted. It can become corrupted by false teaching. And I want you to hear me well. A polluted gospel is a powerless gospel. I want you to look with me. Peter opens this letter and he wades right into it. He didn't waste any time getting to the point. Let's start reading verse 1 of 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter says, Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, a slave of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. See that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises. Now I'm reading out of NASB this morning. So that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, in your faith supply, moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. He's saying, so with your faith, apply these things, okay? Apply moral excellence or goodness or virtue. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. In your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness or mutual affection. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who, now he's talking to Christians, who fail to apply these things, who fail to live this way, he says, for he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brother, Make certain about His calling and choose you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Now folks, in the very greeting of this letter, right from the very start, Peter sets the tone. And you may not know this unless you study Greek or speak Greek or, or read in the Greek. But what's amazing about this, those first 11 verses, they are one sentence in the Greek language. It's almost like Peter couldn't find a stopping point. He said, this is important. I've got to get it out. And the first thing that he shows us, I want you to notice this in verses 1 and 2. The first thing he tells us is Jesus is the foundation of our faith. Not a religious belief. Not some denomination. Not a religious or philosophical worldview. Not a church, but Jesus Himself is the foundation of our faith. Now, the reason I make such a point about that, and I know many of you are saying, uh, we're home folks, we're saved, we understand that. Uh-huh, I think we all understand it, but we need to be reminded of it from time to time. And especially in the day and the time in which we're living today. Friend, listen, when it comes to understanding our faith, it comes to, under, to understanding and getting the gospel right, it is essential. It is of 
utter vital importance to know who Christ is. Because, friend, if you get Jesus wrong, then nothing else is going to be right. Who Jesus is makes what Jesus came to do possible. Do you understand that? No one but Jesus. And when I say Jesus, I'm talking about the true Jesus. I'm talking about the Jesus the Bible shows us. I'm not talking about a Jesus made up in somebody's mind or a Jesus that many people, some kind of figure they have in their head of what Jesus is like. I'm talking about the biblical, righteous, holy Jesus. And listen to me, only Jesus could make salvation possible. Because, folks, if He was not who He said, then He couldn't do what He came to do. Now notice this greeting. I I love this. Verses 1 and 2. How Peter introduces himself. He says, bond slave. I'm a servant. I'm a slave to Jesus Christ. Right off the get-go, Peter doesn't uh, say, I have this authority to speak to you. He said, no, I'm a servant. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. He belongs to Christ completely. He exists, and I think all true preachers understand this, we exist to serve Him and to do His will. That puts Peter where all of us need to be. And all of us need to understand this. If we are Christians, we are slaves. We are servants to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Most people don't. You know why? Because they don't want to accept that humility it takes to be a servant. Let me explain something to you, friend. All of us, if you're Christian, all of us, we're servants of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to tell you, there's no higher calling, there's no greater honor, there's no no more exquisite title than to be a slave for Jesus Christ. We belong to Him. This is how Peter sees himself and identifies himself first and foremost. And that's the way, Christian, we ought to identify ourselves as well. Then notice he says, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now that term can loosely be used to refer to one who is sent or commissioned with a task or a message on behalf of another. Uh, which I guess you could look at it this way. That, that In that sense, it means that all of us who are Christians are apostles because we've all been commissioned with a task of spreading the gospel to a lost world. Amen? But, the way it's used most of the time in the New Testament, the word apostle, when you see that, that makes reference to a specific group of men. Men who followed Jesus, who throughout His ministry listened to His teaching. Men who held a position of authority in the early church and whose teaching is irreplaceable and has authority for the church. Now, the key person in the greeting, and you might have missed this, the key person in those first two verses is not Peter, friend. It's Jesus. Jesus is the master. Peter is the slave. Listen, Jesus is the cornerstone and the foundation of our faith. And to understand our faith, we have to recognize who Jesus Christ is. And he, in these first two verses, I'm going to tell you, Peter, he gives a concise, a powerful picture of Jesus by the titles that he used to describe Jesus. First of all, he identifies Jesus as God. Folks, this is a direct and clear declaration of the divinity of Jesus Christ. He attributes full deity to Christ. Look at verse 1 again. Peter said, To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's not talking about two, he's talking about one. Okay? Now get that in your head. Now look at verse 2. Because later in verse 2 he makes a distinction. 
Listen to that verse again. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. There he's talking about two and not one. Now those two statements, a lot of folks seem to think that they contradict each other. Oh no, no. They complement each other. Now you may have to think about this for just a minute, but listen to me. Maybe you're thinking, well what, what is Peter trying to communicate? Well what Peter's doing is reminding us of the doctrine of the Trinity. He's reminding us God eternally exists as three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God, and there is one God. Understand the significance. Jesus was no ordinary man. No ordinary man, not even a perfect man, could adequately serve as a sacrificial substitute for a sinful man on the cross and pay the sin debt for all people of all time. And think about this, if Jesus had been a created being and not fully God, how in the world could a created being bear the full wrath of God for the sins of the world? And let me take it a step farther. If Jesus is not fully God, then justification by faith alone is threatened. And if we deny the full deity of the Son, we have to question whether he, we could fully trust Him to completely save us or not. Notice not only he identifies Jesus as God, but he identifies Jesus as the Christ. Now, that term, that title, we have heard it often, and it's attached to the name of Jesus. And we think about Jesus, but we fail to think about the name and the title of Christ. Folks, it's of great significance. And let me explain it to you. Christ in the Greek translation is the Hebrew Old Testament word, Messiah. Or anointed one, chosen one, the one and only. And the word Christ, the title of Christ, that identifies Jesus as the one who fulfilled all the Old Testament teachings. He's the one who filled the hopes of the Old Testament. He met all the requirements of the law. He served as our great sacrifice and our one true final Passover lamb. He is the one, Christ. Next, notice how Peter identifies him. God, Christ, but then he identifies Him as Lord. Now understand, Lord, in the Greek translation, it's, it's translation actually of the Hebrew name, God. One New Testament scholar said this, To call Jesus Lord among people who knew their Old Testament was to say that Jesus was present all the way through the history of Israel as their covenant Lord. So here's what I want you to grasp, Christian. Whenever you read in the Old Testament that God did such and such or the Lord did this or did that, understand Jesus was acting there. You understand me? In the 23rd Psalm, one that everybody knows, it says, The Lord is my shepherd. Jesus Himself said in the New Testament, in John 10, He said, I am the good shepherd. Here's what I want to point out to you, friend. Jesus always has been part of the story. And He always has been the focal point of the story. The truth is, every book of the Bible points to Jesus Christ in some way. Then notice he calls him Savior. Now here's the truth. Friend, I want you to get this in your heart. Jesus could not be Savior if he was not God, Christ, and Lord. As Savior, he came to rescue and save people from the penalty of their sins. Now here's what I want to get at. This fourfold description that Peter gives of Jesus... It puts Jesus right at the focal point of all human history. 
Let me explain to you. As God, He guarantees His words and works cannot be replaced. They cannot be revoked. As Christ, He fulfills all the Old Testament promises. As Savior, He died on the cross for our salvation. That salvation in the past, present, and future. As Lord, He claims the right to our individual love and obedience. He has the right to demand first place in our lives. This is important. Because this letter was written, that the Apostle Peter is writing to people who were hearing and being led astray by some in the early church. Some who claimed Jesus as Savior, but they would not obey Him. They would not recognize Him as Lord. That's a problem we still have in the church today. Because, listen, Jesus is Lord. And because He is Lord, He can be our sufficient Savior. And because He is Savior, then He owns those He has saved and ransomed, and He has the right to be their Lord. Does that make sense to you? Jesus has the right. He has a double right. There's the right of creation, and then there's the right of redemption. Peter doesn't want any confusion as to who Jesus is and how we come to enjoy the salvation Jesus provides. So, in these verses, we also see how we gain entrance into the faith. So, the second point, salvation or entrance into the faith comes by the work of God. Go back to verse 1. We're told that those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's important, folks. Peter, what he does, he points out the beautiful truth that we all share the same faith. Each and every one of us, if we're Christians here this morning, we share the same faith. That's something beautiful. Amen? There may be a lot of things. Maybe a lot of things that are different about us. But friend, that's one thing that's the same about every one of us. We share the same faith. Now, he's not talking about content of faith. He's talking about common experience that every true believer shares in salvation. You see, folks, I, as a preacher and a pastor, I was not given anything greater or lesser than you was. You were not given anything greater or lesser than I was. We all share the same experience of faith. We all stand in the same relationship to God because of Jesus Christ. That's believers today and all believers in days gone by. We all stand in the same relation because of Christ. What we share is is the fact that we did nothing to earn it. What we share is that we all received it as a gift. I want you to notice the words Peter uses. To those who have received a faith of the same kind. Now notice that word received. When we think of received, it gives us the idea of, of receiving, you know, reaching out and taking something. Now, let me explain this word to you. The word receives comes, received comes from the ancient uh, world of politics. And the word received that's used there in the Greek was used to refer to the appointment of positions received by government officials. It was also used of people who had their post and position assigned by lots. So, the word that's used for received is used three other ways like this in the New Testament. In Luke 1, 9, John 19, 24, and Acts chapter 1, verse 17. Now, it's not something what Peter's wanting us to understand. It's not something obtained by effort, but it's a gift. It's an assignment by someone greater than ourselves. And what Peter is doing here, he is pointing to God's active, to God's sovereign role in salvation. 
Salvation comes by the work and the gift of God. And for that reason, not one of us have a reason to boast or hold ourselves in higher position than anybody else. Understand, Christian, and you've heard me say this before. My dad used to hammer this into me when I was young. He'd say, son, the ground at the cross is level. It's all level. I didn't understand that until I got a little older. You know what that means? That means you were saved, I was saved, you were saved by the same grace in the same way. By grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. None of us did anything to deserve it. So that, all, that puts us all on level ground. See, that does away with division caused, if you're a true Christian, with division caused by social standing or economic standing or race or anything else that Satan uses to divide people. As Christians, we're not divided. We should not be. Why? Because we all came to salvation the very same way. We were all sinners, lost and headed to hell, and the grace of God pulled us to Himself. And we believed in Jesus Christ. We all came the same way, the way of the cross. We also see uh, it comes, the salvation we have, it comes based on the works of another. Go back again. Look at the last part of verse 1. It says, To those who have received the faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this common salvation came not based on our righteousness, but on Jesus, on His righteousness. Now folks, this was a contradiction to what was being taught in the church in Peter's day. There were some in Peter's day, and they were beginning to teach and to say, and still uh, they still teach this in our day, that salvation only comes uh, by special knowledge, by those who are truly enlightened, you know, by those who are gifted with the Spirit, and I'm going to step on some toes, and are able to speak in tongues, or able to do this, or able to do that. Mm-mm, that does away with all that, friend. Listen to me. There are those I know that teach that today. No, by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. It's all about Jesus, not you and not me. And let me remind you of something while we're talking about salvation here. Salvation is not the end, it's the beginning of a new life. And it's to be a life that is productive and fruitful for the kingdom. In other words, once you get saved, you're not supposed to sit soaking sour. You're to be productive for the cause of Christ. I want you to look. That leaves me a third point. Look at verses uh, 3 through 9 again. The goal of faith is to live a productive, godly life. Let me read these to you one more time. Beginning in verse 3. Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith supply, moral excellence, and your moral excellence knowledge, in your knowledge self-control, in your self-control perseverance, and in your perseverance godliness, and your godliness brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness love. For if these qualities are yours and are increased, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. 
Folks, that is a powerful passage of Scripture. And Christian, maybe you want to read that on your own again. And let God speak to your heart with it. Do you realize that even in the church's earliest days, not long after the church was birthed and born, there were people who had a false view of Christian freedom and salvation. That's what Peter is speaking about in the verses that we just read. There, there have always been those who believe because salvation cannot be lost. Now I'm talking specifically, and I'm one of them, the diehard Baptist here, so I want you to listen to me. Amen. Are you a diehard Baptist? Yeah, listen to me. Okay. There's always been those people who say because salvation cannot be lost, because we're saved by God's irrevocable grace, then they could live however they please. They didn't feel there were any standards or laws that applied to their life. There are, are far too many professing Christians today who believe that lie. So what Peter is doing is, he wants all of us to know there is no such disconnect in the Christian life. Let me explain it to you. Our faith and our life, how we live it, they are irrevocably connected. They are, are, are to be inseparable. Our faith should inform our lives. It should govern our lives. Our faith in Jesus Christ should direct our lives. There are people in churches today who, even though they may not voice this, they live as if their faith is purely an internal and private matter and not necessarily connected to a public or to an observable faith. In other words, they say, I keep my faith and my public life separate. I don't have that's possible. Matter of fact, it's not according to what Peter says. Do you realize, friend, if that's your attitude, let, let me fill you in on something. That is exactly what society wants from Christians today. Let me go a little deeper. This is the very argument that we hear from the public sector, from liberal politicians, from the LGBT, BAY, whatever it is, community, from our schools, from our work. They want us to believe and they want to push this false narrative on Christians that you can have faith, you can have genuine, true faith, simply keep it at home, keep it in the church building, keep it to yourself. Friend, you cannot. That's not true, genuine faith. True belief, true faith, it's going to inform and integrate. It's going to inform our lives and integrate into the actions of our lives. You see, the world, they have no problem allowing their beliefs to inform their actions. But they have a real serious problem when true Christianity rears up and integrates its beliefs, its beliefs into someone else's life. Listen, the world, the lost world, the world that despises Jesus Christ... They don't care if you believe. They just don't want your belief to influence your speech, your actions, your lifestyle, or your habits. And they don't want to hear about it. Now, they want you to hear about theirs, but they don't want to hear about ours. They want to tell us, you can believe, just keep it to yourself. And the sad part is, today especially, too many so-called professing Christians and too many churches willingly comply with what the world wants. Well, we don't want to offend anybody, so we, we better not do that. How many times you heard me say the gospel is offensive? Listen to me, friend. Without offense, there's no effect. The gospel is offensive. Do you not believe it was offensive when Jesus Christ died on the cross in blood and agony for you and me? That was offensive. 
Peter tells us that it doesn't work that way. Okay? A true faith is going to guide and direct your life. That's why he tells us in the verses I read a few moments ago, verses 5 through 8, that we're to add to our faith supply. And there's several things, Christian, we're to add to our faith. Notice what Peter says. First, he says goodness. Again, that speaks of virtue or, or moral excellence. That deals with how we treat others. It, it talk, it's speaking of active goodness. Then he says knowledge. Christian, that means you learn more about Christ and what pleases Him, and you align your life to that. Then look at the third thing, self-control. Not prone to excess in life or actions. Then he uses the term perseverance. That means we're going to push through tough times because we know better times are ahead. And then notice, he says godliness. Friend, that just speaks of practical awareness of God and every aspect of your life as one of His children. The next word used or phrase is brotherly kindness. I think mutual affection is what some translations use. Now understand, this is important, this is significant. Outside of speaking about the home and the family, this is the only time in the New Testament that phrase is used. And it's speaking of a relationship that we should have with one another in the church, in the body of Christ. Brotherly kindness, mutual affection. And then he uses the word love. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. These things should become evident in our lives as we grow in Christ. They're evidence of faith. It's the outworking of faith. The normal outworking of faith in a believer's life. And I want to be honest with you. They don't come naturally at times. Can I get an amen? I mean, they, they don't come easily. You have to work at it. Now, when I talk about work, understand this. I'm not saying we play a part in salvation. No. No way, no how. We don't play a part in that. But we do play a part in the outworking of salvation. Let me put it this way. This work, this striving, folks, that we do in the Christian life to, to add these things to our faith supply. Listen to me. It's not so we can earn our salvation, but the genuineness of salvation is demonstrated by that striving. By that desire to not just know Christ as Savior, but friend, to honor Him as Lord in your life. Now let me recap, and I'm winding it up here. I didn't realize I was going to preach so long. This has been a long time. I'm getting caught up. I think the biggest part is I'm just... Getting old, I don't have energy I used to. <laughs> Let me recap. This passage that we're reading here, Second Peter 1, it tells us Jesus is the foundation of our faith. It tells us salvation, entrance into the faith comes by the work of God. It tells us, thirdly, that the goal of faith is for us to live. Many people have it, they have it wrong. The goal of salvation is to take me to heaven. Thank God for it, but that's a byproduct of it. The goal of salvation is that we be forgiven of our sins so we might live a productive, godly life in this world. In this present evil age, Paul calls it. And now I want you to see the fourth thing. God gives us what's necessary to live that godly, productive life. Look back at verses 3 and 4. It says, Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us, I love this verse, His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Did you notice two things 
Peter says in those two verses that Jesus gives us. First, He gives us His power. He has given us everything we need to be the kind of people He's called us to be. He has given us everything we need to live godly lives. And then secondly, He's given us His promises. Aren't you glad for the promises? Amen. For the promises we have in the here and now and promises for later. Trusting and living in light of these promises, that's what enables us to overcome whatever the world throws at us. He gives us what we need, which means, and I'm close right here, which means we cannot blame Him when we fail to live how we should live. Let me make it real clear to you, Christian. There is no excuse for us not living godly, productive lives. If we're living, if we're not living godly, productive lives, it's because we have chosen to not live godly, productive lives. We are, as Peter says in verse 9, blind or short-sighted and we have forgotten our purification from our former sins. We have forgotten who Jesus is and what He has done for us. That's the reason that we fail to live godly, productive lives. I want to say a couple more things in here this morning. I was going to kind of skip this, but no, Lord, I'm going to go ahead and say it. I'll, I'll do it. You know, lately, with everything that's been going on in the world around us, with the, the riots, or excuse me, the protests that turn into riots, it's kind of like a, you know, a hockey match that turned into a fight, or a fight that turned into a hockey match, however you want to look at it. But the, the protests and everything that's going on, and all of that, and, and, and what has been happening in the world, I've been reading, uh, and I'm on several different pastors' websites. I know Brother Damon is too. And I've been reading a lot of things that are posted by pastors around our state and around the world. And posted not just by pastors, but by others. And one of the common themes that I, I read through these, uh, that I've read, and I've read a lot of articles and posts, and, and, and what people are saying is that the church needs to be more open and understanding to the needs, uh, more open and understanding to the feelings of the world around us. Even to the point where some pastors have posted articles that the church needs to be open to demonstrate and protest with those, uh, what's going on, peaceful protest. That the church also needs to be open about uh, the, the, the things that face, that face uh, what they call minority groups like the, the gay, lesbian, bisexual community. Folks, let me make something real clear. I'm not against abusing anybody. And I'm going to tell you something. I will love and share the gospel with any person. I don't care what color they are. I don't care what lifestyle they live. You know why? Because Paul said, so were some of you before the gospel found you. I don't care who they are. But I will not go along with sinful activity to try to convince myself that I'm going to use that to influence them for the gospel. God, deliver us from that. That's a current theme. That's a current trend that's in the world today. And I'm hearing that from pastors. God help us. Folks, listen, let me be real clear on this. What they're saying, in other words, is we need to agree with the world so we can influence the world. That's what the church has been doing for 65 years. And the church has not 
influenced the world, the world has influenced the church. Now, I want to be real clear. I'm not saying that we should not stand against what's wrong. No, if that's what you think I'm saying, you heard me wrong. We ought to stand against what's wrong, but we need to make sure first and foremost that we stand for Jesus Christ. Because let me be real clear. Jesus came into this world not to make this world a better place to go to hell from, but to save people from their sin. Church, that's our message. Our primary responsibility is to share Jesus Christ, the gospel, with a lost world. We need to make sure that we fight against the currents and we stay anchored in Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads, please? We're going to have a time invitation. Brother Old, lead us in a song. I know we're trying to maintain social distancing. I'm going to tell you something. If God has laid it upon your heart that you need to come forward, you need to make a decision this morning, perhaps give your life to Jesus Christ. Perhaps you just need to surrender to the call of grace that God's placed on your heart and life. Or maybe, Christian, you need to read a godly, productive life. Because you've bought into the lie that, well, I can't be outspoken about my faith. I can't take a stand. And in so doing, in so doing, you have demeaned the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who died for you, you have forgotten what he saved you from and where he has taken you to. Wherever the season he may, maybe you're looking for a church home. Then come forward, come right here at the front, I'll deal with you, we'll maintain some social distancing. But whatever decision God's placed on your heart, that's important. You need to make that this morning. Father, I pray for those who need to step out and come forward. I pray that this message would sink into our hearts. We would understand that as your children, as believers, we're called to live godly, productive lives. And we need to be reminded that, that our salvation was solely by grace. That we didn't earn it and that we're not better than anybody else. But the ground of the cross is level and I praise you for that. I pray for those who need to rededicate their life. They would do so this morning. For those who need to quit trying to earn their salvation, trying to be acceptable to you and realize, realize if they'll just receive the grace you offer, that Jesus Christ makes them acceptable. Father, I thank you for your love, for your grace, for your patience with us. In Christ's name, amen. Would you stand, please?